This week we go inside one of the most dangerous types of operations the ATF ever conducted with the agent who mastered the art of street theater. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back to Game of Crimes. My name is Morgan Wright. I am here literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, the number one crime fighter in this duo right here. Yeah, Steve, uh, again, you know, if that's all you've got, <laughs> you know, we are in trouble. And in fact, but I'll tell you what, I'm proud of you. There wasn't a delay this time like there was last time. It was like, <laughs> and my partner in crime, who am I again? Who am I? Oh, I I'm Steve Murphy. I had to look yeah. at the script. <laughs> I'm I had to better. look at the script. What is my name? Hey, See, anyway, so you, guys, have a, you, have a face, you have a face made for radio. I have a face made for television. That's the difference. Yes, you do. One of television right on top of it, you know. <laughs> Get to work. Quit Get to work. Hey, well, guys, thank you. I, I'm telling you, I, I had such fun with that episode three with Pam Barnum. You know what? I, I'm scared. <laughs> she's <laughs> half my size, but I'm scared of her. <laughs> oh, you don't want to tick her off. I'm telling you, she's somebody that's that nice will kill you. And and then she'll apologize for it because she's Canadian, eh? I'm sorry I killed you there, but uh, you know you deserved it there, pal, eh? Never, uh, never uh, misunderstand kindness for weakness, weakness. You know what I mean? Nah, nah, never mistake kindness for weakness. So anyway, that was a great episode. But guess what? We got a lot of things coming up at you for this one. But before we get into it, just a little bit of housekeeping. So remember, Apple Review, five stars. It's magic. It's like Disney, the Magic Kingdom. We don't know why, but it helps a lot. So help us out. By hitting those five stars, help us get up the charts so that we can deliver you even more fantabulous. Fantabulous is a word I, I coined for this episode only. Fantabulous <laughs> content coming at you. Must and then a, also hit on, go ahead, what did you say? That must be a Kansas word, huh? Um, well, it is because it has more than two syllables, so we know it's not a West Virginia <laughs> word. So, Yeah, but nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. Um, as do most people in West Virginia don't know either. They know uh, everything I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> You guys in West Virginia, you got to back me up here, brothers and sisters, because you know we're all related, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. If I divorce my wife, is she still my sister? That's the big legal question in West Absolutely. Virginia. Hey, well, their state motto is she's not good enough for her own family. She's not good enough for ours. That's right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to work. <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled uh, harassment. <laughs> anyway, head on over to our new website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where we, again, basic site, we're starting out. That's where our episodes live right now, but we will have merch coming. We'll have uh, additional content when we start doing live shows. We'll have links to all of our stuff, like for uh, Patreon and PayPal, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. We'll also have our mailing list there. That's an easy way for us to get you on mail. Just your uh, first name, email, and we will get stuff out to you. And by the way, Steve, speaking of that, we've been talking about this. So Patreon, we are going to commit to you, and I'm ambushing Steve with this live. On, well, it's technically not live. We could edit it out if we want. But there's more drama when I say, Steve, we will commit to having <laughs> Patreon available by the end of July, if not sooner. This is the way I find out most things is when we're talking to you guys, and he's got me on a recording, and he springs all this on me. So actually, I think this is a fantastic idea. Um, we've been teasing you with the 12 episodes that Morgan interviewed Javier and I. We have never, never in our lives, it's, we've done hundreds of shows around the world on our worldwide tour. We've never gone to this much depth about our careers, and especially the Escobar investigation. So uh, we're, we're going to be telling you things that even Netflix Narcos didn't know about. 
And if you know Steve, there's very little depth to Steve, so this will be a revelation for all of us. So, <laughs> Duh, what are you talking about? There? What are you talking about? Hey, so remember, folks. Uh, so we get to that, and remember, just a quick disclaimer: this is a show about crime. You know, we talk about bad things that happen to bad people, bad things that happen to good people. But guess what? We take the story seriously, but not ourselves. Very good. You're getting trained, Murph. You're like a you're like a seal at a circus. You know, I'm, you're getting better with every every episode. Let me clap for you. Yeah. How's that? Well, hey, here's real quick housekeeping before we get into our small town police blotter. This is going to be a two-part episode. So guys, this is how it's going to go down. We're going to intro part one like we always do. We're going to do this. We'll do our small town police blotter. We'll tell you a little bit about the episode and then we'll get into it. What we're going to do differently, we're not going to make you wait a week to get to part two. We're going to drop part two on Thursday. So what we'll do is a quick just outro of this, not not a whole lot of fanfare. We'll do a quick intro for the second part, part two, and we'll just get right into it. And then we'll do our regular outro uh, on the second part. So we're just going to, we're just going to give you a bunch of content, make you have fun. Does that sound groovy, baby? Oh yeah. And see, if we were jerks about it, we would do a two part and we'd put the second part on Patreon where you'd have to subscribe. But like you said, we're not, you're not, uh, scumbags like like Morgan said we're and actually sometimes we're not even assholes like uh, small town murders claims so yeah now we're we're nice people right so uh sometimes but, but yeah you know and again all of this is good stuff so we're going to get into it you're noticing that we're getting better at this as we go along this is all about you guys are hanging with us we want to say thank you guys uh, thank you to everybody who's been uh, giving us five stars getting us rocketing up the charts Woo-hoo. so steve guess what time it is I bet it's time for Small Town Police Blotters. Steve, guess what? What? This first one actually comes from Sandy Salvato, or it could be Sandy Salvato or Sandy Salvato, you know, depending on how you pronounce it. Anyway, it ends in a vowel. She's probably Italian, which means she's connected to the mob. So I got to read this. So and you, well, you sound like Jimmy Weissman when you're doing this. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not, not quite that bad. I still have all my hair. Anyway. Hey, easy, guess what? Easy now. Ankeny, Iowa. I, I, wherever the hell Ankeny is or Ankey, but Ankeny, Iowa. This happened actually June 28th. Police arrested an Ankeny man after he allegedly threatened to blow up a McDonald's restaurant for neglecting to include dipping sauce with his order of chicken McNuggets. Whoa. <laughs> That's felony, you know, felony failure to display dipping sauce. So what he did was he called, realizing his order didn't include the dipping sauce. He threatened to blow up the restaurant and punch an employee. So guess what? He got arrested. Wow. He got free nuggets, but the jailhouse kind of nuggets, which we all know <laughs> suck, right? Yeah, and he got a special sauce in jail, I'm sure. It wasn't barbecue <laughs> or oh uh, honey no, mustard. No, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't drop the soap, pal. Yeah, That's all buddy. I can say. <laughs> you got a pretty mouth, boy. <laughs> this sounds like something out of Deliverance, which, by the way, was filmed in West Virginia. No, where, no, where no. Are you that's, from again, that, Steve? Crab, that had, crust, crusty Crotch, West Virginia. Where was that at? That had to be something to do with Kansas. I don't know. No, that's, it was West oh, Virginia. Pal. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I met some people from uh, from out in Chapman, Kansas, believe it or not. I couldn't believe it. I meant to tell you this on the phone the other day. You did. And you I, already said this on the previous episode. You know, well, the best thing that ever happened was you leaving Chapman, right? Yeah, shit. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, the, I guess the second company called. <laughs> <laughs> you got two calls. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, uh, Okay, Steve, I'm going to read you this story, and then I'm going to have you try and figure out what the headline is. Okay. 
So this happened in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. A deputy said that the strip search of a belligerent man after a traffic stop turned up crack cocaine <laughs> hidden in a plastic bag tucked between the man's buttocks. That's why they call it crack. <laughs> That's right. Well, so the headline is, Deputy, strip search finds crack between buttocks. No shit. <laughs> Found crack in the crack. Just say no to crack, both kinds. Say no to crack, especially if you're in prison and you drop the soap. Oh. By the way, you know what they say in prison? The best, you know, um, uh, you don't want to be in prison when you hear the thing, you know, the best kind of uh, surprise sex is first thing in the morning, except when you're in prison. Oh. So, oh. hey, okay, there we go. All right. We went down quickly in this episode. <laughs> well, it's not like we had a low, a high bar to achieve anyway, so... Okay, I got another one for you. This this one is good. This one is just clean and legit, but I mean, you got to just admire the officer for their creativity. So police checked the area. At, don't know where this is, but it says police checked the area. They had an, a call of an open door on a building. Police checked the area and found an open door in the back of the building. An officer went, insi- went inside and called out, Marco. Now, the man's name was not Marco, Detective Tindor said. Instead, the officer was just trying to inject some humor into the situation. Police found the suspect when he responded, Polo! <laughs> he just thought he was at the local community pool. That's all he's looking uh, for. Now, I got to tell you, little old me in Garden City, Kansas, but back there, I think it was when I was a trooper, we actually made Paul Harvey, because the American Legion in Garden City, Kansas is the most confusing fucking building when you're sober. This guy breaks into it one night, drunk, drinks up a bunch of liquor bottles, can't find his way out, so he calls 911 to have the police come get him because he's lost inside the American Legion. <laughs> you can't make this crap up. Oh, you can't make this crap up. All right. All right, man. Here's another one oh, for you, Murph. Okay. This, get this one on. This one's going to keep you on the edge of your seat. You know why? Why? Because an Edgewood man reportedly <laughs> reported recently that his wife had gone missing. About 18 months ago. Wow, boy, that's timely. Do the <laughs> nothing says love like when she disappeared. I don't know. She, you know, about a year and a half ago, I noticed my laundry was piling up, and I didn't think too much of it. You know, he must have been enjoying the peace and quiet around there. Oh, you're gonna get yourself in trouble. Yeah, no, I'm happily married. You know, I've been married to this woman Too bad woman your wife's now. not. <laughs> been married to her now for uh, forever, I think it is. So we're good. Yeah, that was a Randy Travis song, Forever and Ever, Amen. All right. Anyway, just a little bit of country trivia there for you. So <laughs> Very little bit. <laughs> very little. So last story. All right. This, this one, this one has elements of Stephen King in it. I mean, this could be supernatural. Police were informed February 25th by a resident of the 1000 block of Raritan Drive that a family dog or that a family in the area is taking over the minds of local dogs and turning them against their owners. The dog whisperer. So you know what the police did? What? Police were advised by the person that the only way to protect the dog is to install an anti-force field on its head before letting the animal go outside. (laughs) What's that? One of the dog collars looks like a radar dish? The Uh, lampshade? Looks like one of those colanders over the top of your head. I'm telling you. And if you're listening out there, Jojo, and you know who you are, um, we we had this crazy lady in Salina, Kansas, swear to God, she said she talked about remote control ball bearings. You know, she knew it was going on because somebody was controlling ball bearings by remote control. And it's like, Ooh. Uh, yeah, you guys are lucky she didn't shoot you with them. Oh, God. <laughs> 
Or maybe she was just looking, she couldn't find her balls. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Must have joined DEA then. Anyway, thank you very much. I'll be here all week. All right, guys, (laughs) enough of this frivolity. We need to get to some serious stuff now, don't we, Steve? Absolutely. And today is going to be fantastic. Our guest is a good friend of ours, Lou Velozzi, who, by the way, uh, has his own podcast, End of Watch, with with, uh, Bootsy and Sal. Uh, his partner is a retired homicide detective in Savannah, and Lou's a retired ATF agent. Um, Lou is a bona fide tough guy. What's his no, undercover he's a bonafide name? Bonafide badass. What's his What's his undercover name? Sal Nunziato. Nunziato in Zeno O, like uh, uh, you know uh, Sandra did Salvato. Common spelling there. Yeah. This guy infiltrated the Outlaws motorcycle gang. I mean, just think about that. Uh, <laughs> you got to be a badass just to go talk to those guys. And then he started uh, ATF's what they call undercover storefront operations. And we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it because he's going to tell you some stories from it. But basically, it's they go set up a, kind of a long-term undercover business operation. Um, and they let it be known that they're willing to buy and sell anything. Uh, and then criminals just start coming to them like magnets. So well, the, that's called being a shit magnet. So what's the, what's the yeah. name of his book? You, he's got a book coming out, and you got to do the blurb on it, which was a, an honor, by the way. It was. It was uh, uh, me and Jay Dobbins, I think, is what Lou told me it was going to be. But the name of his book is Storefront, The True Story of an ATF Agent's Life Undercover. Now, it's not out yet. It's still uh, being published right now. But it's definitely a book worth reading. I got to read the—well, uh, I sent it to you also— Morgan, so yep. that we could both go over. It's about 25 pages of scripts that we read through it. And what really shocked me about it is the depth of truth and personal stories he goes into. And you're going to hear this in the interview today. So I'm going to stop right there and, and let you hear it from uh, the horse's mouth. Got to ask you one question. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? I'm always ready. Let's go listen to Lou. All right, gang, guys and girls, amigos and amigas, bienvenidos, welcome to Narcos. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve, that's wrong, wrong episode. But thank you anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's going to cost you too. That's, that's free advertising. So hey, no, look, this one of the great things about doing this show is Steve's network, my network, we're all simply one phone call away from finding fascinating people. And today... This guy is going to be fun to talk to because you got to get your best sopranos on. So we want to welcome to the show, Louis, Big Stud Valozzi. Louis! Man, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here, my brothers. <laughs> yeah, you're oh. lying already. Okay, that's the first <laughs> lie. <laughs> a second. Hey, no, by the way, uh, it's true. It's true. It, tell me, everybody who's in the mafia, their name ends in a vowel. Can you think of anybody big time? Gambino, Lucchese, Banana. Is there anybody whose name doesn't end in a vowel? No, it's a prerequisite. No. Okay. Even, even, even Joe Pistone, who played Donnie Brasco, both of <laughs> them right. ended in a vowel. <laughs> yep. I tell you, it's, it's one of those indicators. How do you know you're in the mob? Well, you know, does your name end in a vowel? You know, Calzanetti, you know. Hey, but look, hey, Lou, so what we're going to do, like we do with all of our guests, we want to spend, we want to talk a little bit about why did you get into this? You know, why did you want to do this kind of stuff? And it's not the it's not the path that most people take. And in fact, we're going to talk about an agency that technically doesn't exist anymore. And that's how you got started, right? But before we do that, I did my research. Steve does his research. 
You used to be a stud in college. Lafayette College, you lettered at middle guard. The Lafayette Leopards, a Division One AA powerhouse. There That's correct. Yep. And did that prepare you for a life of crime? It did not. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, yep. not at this Terry Tate office linebacker taken. Well, maybe for a takedown or something, right? Well, I'll tell you what, Morgan. It it played an integral part in. Uh, me going into the career that I went into uh, in a weird in a weird way. Let's talk about that because you're. What was first of all? Why did you want to get into law enforcement? You know what was there something you know growing up? Were you around uniforms? Were you around military cops? Or did this just were you at college one day and go? I think I want to you know I want to do something like this. Where did this original thought come from? Not even close. So it, it, it's an interesting story. I. Uh, I graduated from college uh, with a very low uh, cum, somewhere around a 2.3, 2.4. Didn't really take my career as a uh, student very seriously. And I had a degree in economics and business. And I was working at a bank uh, in New York making next to nothing, uh, working in a room with no windows, looking at computer printouts all day. So one day I, I got a call. I talked to a, a buddy of mine who I had played college football with, uh, and he was he was down in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, he said, hey, man, why don't you come down, check me out. I'm at my brother's place. And uh, so I said, OK. So I drove down there and, you know, we were just hanging out one afternoon and his brother came home. I had nev- never met his brother, Italian fellow. Uh, I won't Naturally. say his name. Okay. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I won't say his name here, but uh, this guy pulls up and he's driving a Corvette. Right. And remember, this is the Miami Vice era. And he gets out and he's got long hair and he's he's wearing a jacket. And I can see he's got a he's got a I, I think it was a 92F, a Beretta in his waistband. And I mean, he just looked like the the. can I are we cursing or is that are we not cursing? It's, it's, it, it's, it's going to be explicit no matter what, because we're going to okay. we're going to drop a gosh darn and a holy shucks every now and then. So but, hey, feel free to let the F-bombs fly. So he looked like the coolest motherfucker I'd ever seen, right? And he comes in, and uh, it turns out he was a DEA agent. There you How go. did you know? Hey, there you go. Well, you know, he, we started talking, and he told me, you know, we, so we had a conversation for about a half hour, 45 minutes. And, and now I was a guy, I had no direction. I knew I didn't want to work at a bank for the rest of my life. But after talking to him for about 45 minutes, I knew what I wanted to do. There was no doubt in my mind that's what I wanted to do. He was working undercover, and uh, he told me a few stories, a little bit about the job, and I was done. That was it. You couldn't so, smell alcohol in his breath, could you? No. <laughs> no. You seen, it, it was you the know, middle of the day. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's true. DEA. True. So how, yep. how did you end up in New York? I mean, you were where, and tell people, where is Lafayette College? Lafayette is in Easton, Pennsylvania. The hometown of uh, the Eastern Assassin, Larry Holmes. Ah, yep. it's yeah. uh, it's right there on the border in New Jersey, Phillipsburg, New Jersey. It's okay. the Eastern Allentown, Bethlehem area. So you were already close to the New York area. So, but it was only an hour up, away. Yep. How did you end up in New York, though? Were you looking for a job in a bank? Did you know? Did it come up? It, it just it came up. I put in. Yeah, I had put in with a few banks. Uh, Again, no direction at all. Uh, I didn't want to show anyone my transcripts because they weren't anything to write <laughs> home about. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I couldn't have been making 12 bucks an hour, I don't think. Uh, mm. 
So through this fortuitous conversation, yep. you're a hook. So what, what's the next step you take after talking to this DEA guy? What do you do? So I knew I needed uh, some experience. I started taking the tests, uh, and things were a little bit different back then. I started you say taking, taking the, the tests. Test, which tests are we talking about? Uh, I believe it was one was the uh, the TEA exam. Maybe uh, there was a different one for the Treasury. Department agencies, which, you know, ATF, Secret Service, Customs, and, and a different one for the Justice Department agencies. Uh, I just, I found them all and I took them all. Uh, there was a recruiter in New York, and DEA was what I wanted, With his name was Junius Nottingham, I remember. And man, I bothered the hell out of that guy. I mean, he was so sick of hearing from me. So, so the first thing I did was I got a job uh, with a private investigator, a guy, a guy from Long Island, Warren Berkowitz. And uh, he kind of fancied himself as a Serpico kind of guy. <laughs> and I worked under his license um, as an investigator. And while I was taking all these tests, I was working as a bouncer. Uh, so your college career in football did come in handy at some point as a bouncer. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, I wanted to be like that Patrick Swayze movie there. Um, <laughs> Roadhouse. Yeah, Roadhouse. So, so I just started taking all the tests. And, uh, you know, the good thing was I was fresh out of college, so I was still in that kind of test-taking mode. And while I was working for this PI, uh, and then I started applying for uh, New York State Police, uh, NYPD, and all that, because I knew I would probably need some experience. Because, you know, the normal career route is not you just get hired by DEA or ATF, you know, without some investigative experience, law enforcement experience. Uh, but I, I just happened to score really high on the one exam uh, that was for, it, it was for a couple different agencies. It was customs and immigration and IRS, I believe, a weird yeah. combination. That's the treasury. Yep. And, and, and uh, real quick, let's put this into context for folks, because we're talking pre-9-11. So pre-9-11, these like ATF used to be a part of Treasury, where it's now part of DOJ. I mean, we're talking... Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into yeah. that later. But what I'm saying is there, things were a lot different. And this is what, oh, what, yeah. time, what time frame are we talking about? The late 80s, early 90s? Where are we at? This was 1990. Okay. Yep, 1990. Uh, so... I, I happened to score really high on this one test and, you know, and I was not expecting to get any, not even an interview. I just started taking the tests for practice. I figured I was going to have to, you know, probably pay my dues, you know, with a local police department, like most people do. Uh, and I get a call, I get a call one day from the INS office out in Los Angeles saying, Hey, can you, can you be here next week for an interview? And for those folks who are not old enough to know what INS means, what's INS? That is the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is now ICE. It's now known as ICE. After, you know, the whole 9-11 transition and, and they merged into ICE along with U.S. Customs. But back then, it was just an agency under the Justice Department uh, that solely dealt with immigration. So you get this, you take this test. So... Was this just the, by the way, did INS, most federal agencies used to have a requirement too, right? That you had to be 25 before you could join, or was that different for INS? It was 21. I, I don't, none of the agencies at that time had that requirement that I okay. knew of back then. Uh, it was 21. And, you know, again, they called me for an interview and I, I was baffled. And I, I remember telling my dad and uh, so I didn't even have a suit, 
right? I didn't have a, a real suit. So he, I remember uh, he took me down to the garment district and we, and we went to some like Chinese guy and they made me up a suit and I had a big long mullet. And uh, so I, I got on a plane. <laughs> I, I had to borrow, yeah, <laughs> I had to borrow the money from my dad uh, to fly out to LA. I didn't know anyone. Uh, we had a, uh, we had a cousin, cousin PJ who lived in South central. This Italian guy lived in South Central. And uh, my dad was like, you're going to stay with Cousin PJ. You go out there. So I flew out there. Uh, went, you know, I f- made my way downtown, uh, tucked my mullet inside my collar and went to the interview. And, you know, I, I tell you what, because I wasn't expecting it and I kind of wasn't ready for it. Like I, I didn't have any. I did really well in the interview. I just sat here like I'm talking to you and uh, and talked to these guys and. I came back and I had a job offer within a week. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, had you ever been on a plane before? Only once. Uh, Lafayette, we played, we played Davidson college in North Carolina. And that was the only time I'd ever been on a plane. We flew from, yep. So what was that like flying into LA that first time? You know, you've gone, you've, you, like you were talking about, you saw this DEA agent, Miami vice LA at that time too. You've got the blood, oh, you got LA the crypts, was awesome. you got stuff going on. So yep. what was it like? You first land at the airport and you're thinking, did you start going, <clears throat> yeah, I could get used to this. Absolutely. You know, I, I tell you, early 90s to be a cop in L.A. was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, it was, it was, when I look back, it was, it was the greatest time in my career. Um, so, yeah, when I first got out there, I, yeah, I mean, the weather and, and L.A. At, back at that time, L.A. was, was great. Uh, the beach towns and... Uh, you know, my cousin PJ was really weird. Uh, you know, he was actually my dad's cousin. He was a Vietnam vet who had written a book and he lived, he lived in the middle of South Central. And uh, just so after the interview, just a quick side note, I was like, man, I want to go to Venice Beach, right? That's the only thing I knew about LA was Hollywood and Venice Beach, right? Growing up, that, that's the only thing I knew about. So I got on a bus I had my suit on and I go to Venice beach and I'm walking down, you know, muscle beach, right. You know, and all the crazy people and the guys playing guitar and skateboards and all that shit. And, uh, I'm just, I'm walking down there, soaking it all in, you know, the gym where the guys are lifting and all that. And I hear, I hear Lou, Lou Velozzi right now. I, you're, I've never left, barely left the New York, New Jersey, right. Uh, Pennsylvania area. (laughs) Just, randomly it was a guy i went to college with really like, what the he came up he goes what the hell are you doing wearing a suit <laughs> walking down venice beach and uh he goes man you got to stay with me so i i went back to pj's and got my shit and went and stayed there and had a great time before i went back like i said and then a week after i came back uh i actually i got an offer you know ins really needed people at the time uh and and they had waived all the they used my my one year investigative experience with a PI. Uh, they used that, and because of my because of my test score, score I actually had an exemption uh, from the three years investigative experience. And uh, and next thing I know, I was swearing in, and I was down at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, which is affectionately referred to as Glencoe, or you know, down at Fletzy, Fletzy right? or Glencoe. That's yeah, right. Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Well, let's let's before we get down, let's talk about that. So you go back. Were you when you got back? Were you expecting to get an offer? Or you think, oh, this is going to take government. This is going to take like six months. You know. Yes, 
I, because I had kind of been going through that process of not getting anyone calling me back. And this guy, Junius Nottingham with DEA, who, who just was ducking me left and right. He was the recruiter, <laughs> you know? And uh, so, no, I was not expecting it. And, and I didn't know anything about INS. You know, I, I knew nothing about INS. Well, when you, let me ask a question. When you went to Fletzy, uh what months of the year was it? You remember? Uh, yeah, it, it was the summer. Oh. Yeah, it was the summer. I, yeah, May, May, June, <laughs> July. And then I had, you know, after, the, you know, the INS Academy was incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, immigration law is, is just controverted. It is, uh, it, it's very difficult. And after that four month, uh, you know, immigration academy, you know, first you have your CI school, you know, criminal investigator school, and then you go off into the separate INS school. And then you have uh, an extra two months of Spanish immersion. So I was down there for a long time. Yeah. And it's nice and warm. Yeah. Lots of bugs. Man. That's why, that's why oh. the guys in the army love Fort Benning during the summer too. Man. Oh yeah. So, yep. Oh yeah. So you're, so you go up to New York, you get this letter now. And so you're thinking, Hot dog. I mean, when did you finally realize that INS was not, you know, you, you were thinking like LAPD and stuff like cops. That, you know, when did it really hit you that INS is this really kind of different agency? It's 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 immigration. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not ATF. It's not DEA at that point. Did that resonate with you yet? Or do, were you just like, I'll just take any job that gets me a badge and a gun and into law enforcement? You know, honestly, I, I just wanted to get my foot in the door, like you're saying. However, uh, you know, I really, when I got into it, I really appreciate it. You know, INS is, is somewhat different in that it is, it, it was a service. So it, it was a multifunctional agency where not only, you know, was there the criminal aspect of it, but, you know, it's also, it, it was also the service that gave people their immigration status, uh, as well as enforced, you know, the immigration laws. So, you know, in the same, in our same building in downtown LA, you know, there was all of us, the criminal investigators, but, you know, then there was immigrants coming in, uh, you know, to apply for status and all that. So, you know, it's a, sur so it was a little bit, it's conflicting a little bit within the agency because it's doing both things at once. You know, when we were in Miami in the eighties there, you wanted to have a good INS agent contact because yes. he could just make things happen. You know, yep. we're dealing with a lot of Cuban immigrants, or refugees coming across that uh, they can't, they can't get a job because they came in under refugee status, but they can't, we can't be deported back to a communist country. Correct. So we had an INS guy and that's the one guy you always took care of, you know, cause when you needed him, he would be there Johnny on the spot. And when he, when he went to the bar, he never bought a drink. That's right. You know, and that's so awesome that you say that because that's exactly what our role was. We came in handy, right? Cause you know, everyone else was a 13, was a GS-13, but INS only took us to 12. So we were kind of like the uh, stepchildren of, of yeah. federal law enforcement. And uh, But we did come in real handy because when you were working a cartel case or, or a street gang case, and, you know, more often than not, especially in L.A. or Miami or New York, you're dealing with foreign-born, uh, you know, gangbangers or, or drug runners, gun, whatever they were. Yeah, the INS status was a good way, always a good way to, to get in the door. Yep. Yep. You know, or to detain someone or to put the squeeze on someone or, or to get a rapid visa, an S visa, whatever you might need to, to keep right. somebody in the country. And we'll talk about that S visa at the end. At okay. the end. We're saving yeah. that for right. the end. Let's yep. talk a little bit about the Academy. So you go down there, you're this kid from Pennsylvania. Your name's Valozzi. And now you're down in Georgia 
you know, what, what was it like to go through the academy? So what was your, what was the thing you really enjoyed about the academy? And what's the thing that you would never, ever want to do again? <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, actually, I'm from New York. I went to college in Pennsylvania. But um, which part of New York? I'm actually from a, a right north of the city, upstate. Okay. So, well, they call it upstate. If you're from, if you're from Yonkers or, or Westchester, you're considered upstate, even though you could throw a rock from the Bronx, right? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so I'll tell you what, the first thing about the academy uh, that I didn't like was we were issued these, they call it the, they called them the brown rounds, right? Uh, these U INS uniforms, these real crappy colored brown uniforms we had, right? And the reason they call them brown rounds was because it was for the agents. We had to wear the same uniform as like the inspectors. All right. And, and, you know, there were so many overweight, uh, male and female inspectors that were kind of round. That's why they call it brown round. <laughs> but we had to wear those. So there, and there was no different, you know, if you looked, you didn't know. Right. So right off the bat, we, everyone was a little bit ashamed at a uniform and all that. Right. They were terrible. And, uh, I, you know, I remember walking around campus, going into lunch and seeing the ATF guys. Right. So I'm in this terror and the ATF guys walk in into like the lunchroom the huge cafeteria there. And, you know, it looked like the Hells Angels coming in, right? Long hair, flowing hair. They're wearing just, you know, the cool blue khakis with a blue ATF t-shirt, right? And they got earrings, beards, uh, you know, they got the rock and roll hair flying, you know, and, you know, we had to have our hair cut and no facial hair and all that. And uh, I, I remember seeing those guys and being like, that's, that's where I want to be right there. Yeah. Um, but I, I tell you what, interesting uh, enough, I other that was the only really downside. I actually enjoyed uh, learning immigration law. I loved all you know the physical aspect of the academy. I love that, uh, but I really enjoyed learning about immigration law and and all the different principles and how you can you know derive status to be in the country and what your limitations are. Uh, you know, I, I I found it fascinating. I enjoyed it. So you go through the academy and then your first, now how, what was the term of art for INS? Was it your first duty station, your first post, your first assignment? How, what's the term of art for INS? Your POS. Yeah. You know, it was, it was your duty station. So, you know, mine was Los Angeles. And, uh, one thing they did, which nobody wanted, but it was great, uh, was my first six or seven months, uh, was, were in LA County jail in central. Uh, so they, they put you immediately on the release line, uh, at LA County jail, where you interview all outgoing, uh, foreign born inmates, which in, in Los Angeles, that's a lot. That's a okay? lot. That's a high number. So, and you inter interview them to determine alienage and deportability. Okay. And if you determine deportability, obviously you, you write up a detainer, you issue a detainer. So. What was the criteria for deportability? What what would make you put a detainer on somebody and say you're you're going home, pal? Okay, so uh, it's multifaceted. So if someone obviously is just straight up illegal, they're deportable, right? If they have no status, okay. If they e if they e weed as we call it, enter without inspection, you know, then they're deportable. Uh, if they had if they were here on status, either a visa, some sort of visa, or a green card, it depends on what crime they've been convicted of. 
okay, to see if they're eligible to be deported, okay? Any any uh, crime involving moral turpitude, and there's a whole list, and it goes into it, which would make them deportable. But I tell you why they really did it was, first of all, for us non-native Spanish speakers, uh, after coming out of Spanish immersion in the academy, you go on the release line and you are speaking Spanish at that jail for eight to 10 hours every day. And you're, you're really honing in not only your interview technique, but interviewing in a, in a different language. And, and, you know, you're talking to back then, you know, the 18th street gang, Florencia Trace. I mean, some of these badass LA gangs, MS 13, which no one knew about back then. I mean, they were already there and they were, they had already hit the ground running in LA. Uh, so, so you're gaining all this experience and, and just talking to gangsters. And, and I always took it a little bit farther, man. I, I would talk to them about, you know, where they came from, what they were all about. Uh, you know, and a lot of them would lie. You know, they would all say they were from Mexico, you know, because they didn't want to go back to Central America or South America because, you know, it's a lot harder to get back from Guatemala than it is from Mexico or from Ecuador. El Salvador, yeah. Right. Uh, so so it, it was just great experience, man, just being, talking to criminals all day. Kind of like what we do. Yeah, talk to absolutely. criminals all day. No, absolutely. Now, hey, well, that's interesting because it leads to the next part too. Is that you spend time in the jail, and then, yep. uh, and the, the thing is too, is that what they taught you in the academy in terms of Spanish isn't really the way it's really applied to. So you almost had to like learn how to apply Spanish in the real world, the way people talk, learning the, uh, you know, all, all of the different, uh, ac- you know, their shortcuts and their language and their idiosyncrasies. Right, the the academy Spanish is far different than what you see out on the street. Right. Absolutely. You know, the Academy Spanish is more uh, Castilian proper Spanish, which is not what is spoken uh, on the streets of Los Angeles <laughs> or, or Miami, Miami or, any yeah, else or New York, else or right, Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That was the thing. Hey, and by the way, too, we'll talk about this later, but we'll work into it. When you showed up, because, you know, as we're sitting here talking and people see a couple screenshots of this, you got quite a few tats. Did you have any tattoos when you went into INS? Uh, I had one on my hip. And one on my arm, and uh, I and that's all I had until I got into ATF, and then I got. So covered. what's what's the one on? You were smiling. What's the one on the hip? So Uh-oh. yeah, growing up, uh, I had a couple buddies, and we, we kind of thought we were uh, we were we were gangsters, and we got a, we got we got a warriors. You remember the movie Warriors? Do it. Remember the Warriors, uh, a gang New York gang movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a warrior's tattoo with like this cool bird. We got him on our hips where our underwear covered so our moms wouldn't see him. When we, were fi- <laughs> we were like 15. Oh, yeah, you're badass. You got to yeah. cover it up so mom can't see yeah, exactly. the tattoo. Right. Because that would that would have been a whooping. Believe I'm, me. Well, I'm just glad you didn't say you had a tramp stamp on the back of your ass. No, no, I never went there. Didn't go there. <laughs> and what was the one on the arm? Uh, an eagle. You had to get an eagle, right? Of Everyone course. had an eagle, yeah. right. Yeah. All right. So, so you've only got two tats. One is one of which is only visible most times, right? Right. And now you're at INS. So let's talk about. So you start working INS. How long are you? How long did you stay at INS? Uh just shy of uh, shy of six years. And what about was some, and what were years. some of the fun cases you got into? Things that were maybe not big time, you know, but just stuff that was like fun to work. What kind of cases were fun to work for INS? Let me tell you, looking back, I mean, it, it really was phenomenal. I, I was in the anti-smuggling unit. Um, 
I was in the, uh, the, the best by far was I was in the uh, uh, task force in Rampart Division in L.A. with uh, ATF, LAPD, and INS. And, and like Steve was talking about uh, earlier, you know, we, we came in handy, so they loved us. Um, but we were basically just doing, uh, you know, street corner jump outs with LAPD. And I answered, uh, our, our sergeant was a guy named Roger, Roger Compton from North Carolina. And, uh, I, you know, we answered to him, we were doing shift work and that's where I learned how to be a cop, man. Uh, you know, my partners were, were, uh, patrolmen and mostly street corner jump outs. And I mean, we just, what's the street corner jump out? You know, we, we would, we would know the corners where they were dealing dope and, uh, you know, we'd watch, you know, watch a few deals go down. Then, then, uh, we'd have one unit take off one of the buyers, you know, a couple blocks away, we'd flip them, send them in, uh, to do a controlled buy. And then we'd all come up, jump out, you know, and, and it was all central, central Americans for the most part. So, uh, that's why we came in so valuable. Uh, but you know, just good police work, man. And what the jump out is, is fun. Chasing and uh, yes. apprehending. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, fun. see, I, I know what it is because I, like yourself, have been a highly trained formal law. But it, we're talking to a lot of people. And a lot of these things are terms of art. A lot of times when right. cops get talking, we use shortcuts or we use words that nobody else understands, right? True. True. So it's like letting people know, say, hey, this is a jump out. Because, I mean, you tell jump out and you talk to a paratrooper, that means something else. Right, the 82nd right. Airborne. Right? Very true. That's right. That's yeah, right. I've done a few jump outs, you know, from yep. uh, 1,280 feet, static line jumps, or the guys that really fall from, you know, the halo jumps, the high altitude oh, yeah. opening. Oh, those guys are awesome. So, but, but you're doing this for six years, but, you know... What's like one of the biggest cases? What's one of the cases you, when you look back on, you say, this is the one I'm really proud of. This is the one that when I think back, I say, maybe it didn't make the headlines, but this is one that really meant a lot to me to help solve. Maybe it's return a family, identify a kid who smuggled. You know, what was one of those cases like that for you? You know, it's, there was a couple of them, man. It's hard to, you know, we were doing these uh, PRC smuggling cases. Uh, And back then. What's PRC? People's Republic of China. So you know, this was at, uh, in Long Beach at the port and th- there was containers full of these Chinese people coming in on these, you know, tankers on these boats. And I, I mean, the conditions were just, were horrible. There'd be a hundred of them in there and like two or three females. And you know, what was, you know, I mean, from, I'm talking about coming from China you know, to Los Angeles. So, you know, the conditions and what was going on in there. And, uh, you know, we, we would, in the smuggling, we'd follow them to, you know, to these, to their, uh, drop houses. Um, you know, cause obviously the goal was always, you know, to get the smuggler, uh, and, and these cases just to see the conditions, uh, and just the smugglers, their lack of humanity, uh, was just, was incredible there. You know, it was very satisfying, uh, you know, when, when you would finally get to the smuggler, uh, you know, and then we would, I mean, there were massive cases cause you'd have to have translators. Obviously these people didn't speak any English and not many of us spoke Mandarin and, uh, you know, and then you would actually always have to use the smugglies, you know, as to testify against the smuggler, you know, as your witnesses that, so they were really big, massive cases. Uh, some of the ones at the airport, we also did, uh, the, the disappointing thing was always that INS statutes had no teeth at all. Uh, we would see these smugglers get 
a year and a half, two years tops, um, and walk. And, uh, you know, there, there were smuggling cases. I remember one at the airport, you know, we worked at LAX and back now, remember this is pre nine 11. Everything was different. There would, you would see, uh, in the, even the domestic flights, you would go to LAX and you would see, you know, we would usually have information beforehand, but sometimes we would just randomly see it. You would see a group of, you know, nine or 10 Central or South Americans kind of deer in headlights look, you know, being led through the terminal by one guy who always knew where he was going, what he was doing. And I mean, you could just look at him and you knew, right? And, they, you know, they would be going on a flight from LA, usually to, you know, Chicago, uh, sometimes Miami, San Francisco. And it, it was, you know, they were just being smuggled. They were being smuggled up there and we would follow them and we would, you know, take them down. You know, we always knew who the smuggler was, uh, the coyote, and we would interview them. And sometimes we'd get them to flip and take us to the house. You know, if they were going, if they were coming off the flight and the next flight wasn't for a few days, they would have a stash house where they would keep them in horrible conditions. Uh, and you know, those, those cases were very satisfying to me from a humanitarian standpoint, uh, just because, to see the the lack of uh, empathy and and that these smugglers had, uh, you know, they didn't care if a couple died along the way. It was just about money. You're literally saving lives by doing that. Yeah. yeah. What were most of the ones from China being brought over to do? Uh, working most of it was it, it was slavery basically, uh, indentured you know servitude. They they uh, most of them restaurants, uh, you know, massage parlors, most mostly uh, Chinese restaurants. Where they would they would have to work basically for the rest of their lives, live upstairs, uh, to pay off their debt to come to America, which they never ever end up paying off, right? Ever. Yeah, and yeah. this is I mean, and when we talk about you talk about smuggling back then, a lot of people now refer to it, we we refer to it as human trafficking, right? So this right. has been going on for I mean decades. This is not just something new that came out. This has been going on for decades. And what you're talking about coming over on a boat, how long did it take? Um, if you remember for that ship to leave China and arrive in the LA port. I want to say it was 12 to 17 days usually uh, for that trip. Imagine being in a container. Uh, just, yeah, there's no I mean, beds, it, you know, there's no chairs. There's no you're toilets. Lucky if you've got a blanket. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Wow. Uh, well, and that's what I'm saying is that, you know, a lot of times these things maybe don't make the news, but you know, all of us have had those cases where we go, this will never make the news, but by God, this is one thing I'm, you know, you take a sense of pride and satisfaction going, you know, I at least yeah. did something here. You know, when I look back on my life, I can point to something and say, I made a difference at least, you know, here in doing something like this. So, I mean, that's, to me, that's a great story. You know, Morgan, you're right on because I, I tell you back then there was nothing cool about being an INS agent. Uh, there was no press. Uh, you, we couldn't even sell a case to the U S attorney's office. Cause you know, I, I was once told, um, you know, I tell you, we, we had some weird powers that were really good. Uh, we could get someone for, you take, you know, these guys would be convicted murderers, right? They do, you know, it's California. So, you know, they do 15 years in prison, right? On, on a brutal murder, rape. And, uh, you know, then on their way out, they would get deported. Uh, and of course they would all come back because, you know, their lives were here, right? So, a great INS charge was just for, you know, re-entry after deportation. So when they stepped back over the line to come back in the country, we, you know, we would find them, arrest them and charge them. And, and the, the only charge was re-entry after deportation. 
But then, as you guys know, when, you know, the judge looked at their criminal history, you know, you got a murder conviction, you got all these convictions. So they would really get whacked for this, even though the only charge was reentry after deportation. So, you know, it really came in handy. You know, we worked a lot with with parole and stuff because these guys would show up for parole, right? They'd get deported. But, you know, in California, they still had parole, even though they had been deported and they'd show up sometimes. You know, and, and so we'd go take them off. But but it was we couldn't sell those cases. I was once told by an AUSA out there in uh, L.A. The case has no sex appeal. Yeah, it's not Miami think... INS. It's Miami Vice. I mean, there's yeah, no series we... named Miami INS. Right. Right. So so that part of it was was aggravating. But the actual work, uh, especially on the on the uh, task force was was great work, man. You know. Great you know, and just for the listeners, you know, clarification here, and I'm, um, this is probably preaching to the choir, but we're not talking about law-abiding, hard-working immigrants coming into our country. We're talking about stone-cold criminals. Yep. You know, they've committed crimes in their own country. They think this is the, yep. the land of milk and honey up here in the United States, and they're going to come up here and apply their trades, learn additional crimes. So, you know, we're not talking about the, what you like to see or, or what you see on the media where they're sensationalized, the uh, the, the legals, you know, the people yeah. who really do want to work. We're talking about criminals, straight out. These countries are not sending us their best people. Absolutely. Now, and, yeah. and that's when you were talking about earlier, too. I remember in the early 90s, too, our first uh, association, we started finding out about MS-13, which is Mara Salvatrucha, the troops of El Salvador. These people were originally guerrillas, you know, and now yep. you've got this. And you talk about tattoos. All you got to oh, do yeah. is go search the internet and look at MS-13 and look at the tattoos these guys have. And that's what really told me is that, you know, this stuff, that's when, uh, when I was a trooper and when I was a detective, the area I was assigned in, we had a two-man INS resident agency out there because we had the world's largest beef packing plant, uh, yep. as well as the, you know, industry and stuff. So there were these document mills, you know, places where they create forged papers. We had the same thing going on. And to your point, man, it was great. You'd have somebody on a traffic stop. You knew that there was something wrong here. Couldn't get them on anything else, but you'd call up your buddy. And I remember his name was Billy, call him up and it's a, Hey man, here's what I got. What can you do for me? He says, I'll be right there. And then it's great. They just come out. They they start doing their inspection. They start doing their uh, evaluation. Their their interview. And then pretty soon it's like, yep, you're illegal. You know, you're. They and then we were able to uh, hook them up and you know bring them into jail. But to Steve's point, we're not talking about a family. Look, and this is one of those political issues. And we're not we're not a political show. I mean, there are difference between people who cross the border. They say, look, I'm bringing my kids with me. We we got to get out of here because we got to have a better life. We're talking about the people who have killed people raped people, yep. murder, you know, um, yep. been involved in drug trafficking, violent drug trafficking, gang activity. These these are the folks that need to be deported. You know, if we're going to spend time focusing on people, it's got to be these really dangerous ones. And I see when we lack the enforcement to do that, these dangerous people get to stay, right? Well, Morgan, to make a one political point on exactly what you just said. So, you know, when you were a state trooper, you know, and you and you came across, you know, a, a van full of uh, uh, no-gooders and, and, you know, obviously, you know, didn't speak the language. So, and, and it was quite a, a useful tool for you to be able to call an INS agent to come out. But these these state and city sanctuary governments now are prohibiting that. They are prohibiting ICE from being able to even talk to you guys uh, because they don't want that in, that enforcement anymore, which to me boggles my mind. 
I, I can't understand. Well, look, it. I'm a selfish bastard, man. I want my city to be safe. I mean, yeah. I, you know, that, that's all I'm after. Keep, you know, keep the violent criminals out. I don't care if they're legal or illegal. I don't care if, you know, what color they are on the spectrum. If you're bad and, and you've, and you're violent and you've committed violent crimes against people, you know, it's kind of like, why would you not want those people out of your community? Great we got, question. We got yeah. enough bad Americans already. We don't need backup. You're not yeah. Kidding. We haven't even started talking about people from West Virginia. So we're going to save that for a little bit. <laughs> we're the people who right. take care of business. Yeah, that's, right. that's, that's right. right. There's hillbillies up in the hills. We're going to come down and get you. All, All right. right. So, hey, well, look. And you might be on the list now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we're still going to have that shooting date, Steve. He thinks he can outshoot me, and I'm going to like, oh, boy. okay. Here we oh, go. There's no question about it. Yeah, we'll see. Awesome. We'll see. About it. We'll see, pal. Yeah, safest place with Steve at the ranges in front of him is what I've been told. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got a video of that one. Yeah, and we'll probably have a special issue, just a special episode about once I whip his butt. There Murphy, you go. Murphy right. Morgan at the range. All right. I love so, it. I love it. All right, so look, so you were an INS, you said, for a little under six years. So that yep. implies, you know, being the great detective that I am, that you went somewhere else. What kind of itch did you get, and how did you scratch it? So I uh, I, I started putting in with other, you know, I on that task force, I had been working with the ATF guys, and, and again, just, you know, became friends with them. Uh, we all lived together in the Hermosa Beach area, and... Uh, yeah, I knew it was where I wanted to be. Uh, they were they were the cowboys. They really were uh, the the undercover work they were doing. So I I put in. I did want to get back to the East Coast. Uh, my dad's health was not good. I wanted to get back. Uh, I put in with uh, mostly to get back to the East Coast. I put in with DEA and the Secret Service and the U.S. Marshals. Uh, and again, my my motivation at the time again ATF was not hiring. They were not, you know, it's a small agency and they just weren't hiring. There was no openings. Um, so, you know, DEA, I actually got offers. Uh, DEA wouldn't tell you where you're going until, as Steve knows, until you're in the academy. Uh, Secret Service offered me a job in Los Angeles where I was trying to get out of. And the marshal said they would take me. I, I had some connections uh, with the marshal in New York uh, through the state police, actually, through a family member in the state police. And, uh, they would take me in the fugitive squad, so I I signed over, and and I went with the marshals, and I went back to Fletzy, back to the academy, <laughs> and I oh, I tell man. you what, I I was very lucky uh, with the marshals, and you know because I had a lot of people saying why the hell are you going to the marshals, but uh, I I worked the fugitive squad for my two years there. I was only there for two years. Um, all over the New York area. And then I went to Puerto Rico and worked there. Uh, the, you know, they were taking any Spanish speakers uh, on, on a, it was actually an FBI, uh, U.S. Marshal, Puerto Rican Police Task Force. And, you know, and I tell you, it was great work. It was action, man. You know, hunting criminals is, as you guys both know, it's great work and it's minimal paperwork, uh, which was See, cool. Hold on. That's the, that's the, you just hit the key thing right there. It's yes, paperwork. Did. It's like, I remember this is a story from long ago and I will not mention the training officer. And this was in a different day and time, but it was like right near the end of our shift. I was training with this guy and we stopped a guy who was obviously drunk. And he looked at me, he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be done, but it's five minutes till 11 and we're headed to the station. 
And if I arrest this guy, it's going to be three o'clock in the morning. And most of the time, the people beat you out of the jail before your paperwork's done. Paperwork, if you, you know, <laughs> that's a great thing about marshals, right? Ah, it's a warrant. Here's your warrant. Write a quick, uh, you know, put them into what was called jabs, right? The joint automated yep, booking jabs. system. That's right. Put them into jabs. And it's like, saw, saw, saw criminal arrested same. I'm out of here. Uh, yeah, nothing to report. Yep. It, it, the, we used to use the term arrested without incident. That was, that was yeah, the term. That yeah. was your one sentence arrest report, right? Yep. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, but you know, I had, uh, finally, uh, then in 90, in 97 ATF finally, because you know, ATF was so hampered by a lack of funding because Hey, hold on a sec before you get into ATF. I want to ask you one more question about marshals, so we can kind of keep it. <clears throat> what's what's the stupidest criminal you came across during the marshals? Probably somebody from Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, you're funny. <laughs> Sorry, all my Kansas friends. Yeah. Well, th there was always the guys who, you know, when you came in the house, would hide under a pile of clothes <laughs> in the closet, right? Those guys always got me, right? That was their best hiding spot was under a pile of clothes in the closet. <laughs> Uh, it, and I also was like, man, you gotta, you couldn't get, do any better than that. Right. I mean, it, you think you're going to open p cops are going to open a closet and not look under a big pile. Oh, there's of clothes? a stinky <laughs> pair of underwear guys. Uh, Hands off. Can't look under here. <laughs> right. Right. Nothing to see here. Yep. Move on. Um, I, you know, I, I think there was a guy in Puerto Rico who, who, uh, we caught. The only reason we caught him, he was in the jungle, man, up in the middle, in the middle uh, of nowhere. And the only reason we caught him was because he wouldn't give up his Harley Davidson. He probably had the only Harley Davidson on that whole island. <laughs> and you could hear it. And, and you could hear it. And, uh, and because he wouldn't give it up, his, we actually got tipped by his neighbors um, and, and again, when I say, I mean, this was remote, man. These people lived in, in the thought of a Harley Davidson being where he was, it was so out of place. And, uh, and the reason, and that sticks out in my mind so much was that when we got him, we actually seized the Harley Davidson and I was standing around like a dope when they were, they were loading it up on the back of a flatbed and it was a, uh, you know, very little was paved then. It was just a bunch of, you know, the driveway was just rocks and stuff. And I'm standing around like a dope looking right behind when the guy was loading up the Harley. And when he hit it, it kicked the rock up and hit me, hit me in the eye. And I ended up, I ended up in the hospital in San Juan, which don't never go to the hospital in San Juan, Puerto Rico. <laughs> I remember being out there in a hallway with a whole bunch of people. I had, you know, my eye and it was, it was horrible. And, and there was rats running all over the oh. floor and it was just, just terrible circumstance. All because I was standing around like a dummy when they were loading up the Harley Davidson and a rock hit mm. in the eye. Do you recover? Uh, okay. Losing the eyesight. Yeah. It was just, it was a, you know, laceration of the, whatever the cornea wow. or whatever, but, uh, Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> the yeah. hazards of the job. <laughs> yeah, stay out of Puerto Rican hospitals. You don't get a yeah. purple heart though for taking a rock from a Harley, do you? No, you don't. But but anyway, I knew it was you know uh, Marshall. It, it was a great time, um, but you know it was temporary. And uh, when ATF, I put in for that opening immediately while I was in Puerto Rico. And where uh, was the opening at? Uh, it was just an opening. So it was an it was crazy. It was an opening for I think. 24 agents and they wanted people who uh 
they, they were only hiring, it was an internal, they were only hiring 1811s agents because if they wanted, they wanted to save money, they didn't want to put everyone through CI school through the first half. So, you know, they only, we only had to go to the ATF portion because we all transferred over. We all lateraled over. We were already 12s and 13s. So, uh, you know, all of us in that class were all secret service, you know, marshals, whatever, wherever they come from customs. And, uh, so I went, my interview was at the trade world trade center in New York. And, uh, I remember they gave me, you know, so after the interview, you know, you filled out on a form, your top three choices. And, you know, I picked, I picked New York, Miami, uh, and LA because I figured as a Spanish speaker, I was guaranteed. One of those three. Yeah. Right. That every, yeah, everyone, everyone's trying to get out of those three. Right. So, uh, a couple weeks later, I got a job offer in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> That's only only the yeah. government can come up with an idea. Like yes, that. that's not just ATF yep. either. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you talk about how funny that it, just a side tangent. But when I got on the state patrol, I was living in Salina. There was a guy living in Garden City and a guy living in Olathe. The guy in Olathe came to Salina. Me, I went to Garden City, and the guy in Garden City went to Olathe. We we're just like, why did you just leave us where we were at? <laughs> right, right. That's efficiency. That's government efficiency. Yeah, but. But now this was your third time at Fletzy, right? Third time. So Jeez. I have definitely spent the most time <laughs> as a basic student at Fletzy than anyone well, in the country. You have a special table in the cafeteria. This is Lou's table. That's right. Oh, That's man. Right. So, uh, so well, if you calculated it out, how many weeks have you now officially spent at Fletzy down in Glencoe, Georgia? Yeah, it definitely... Uh, uh, Close to it's over a year as a basic Jeez. student. Wow, well over a year. Yeah. So when people find out yeah. you're back for your third time, do they think, "Oh, he's a special kid. He can't get it right," or yeah. it's kind of like, well, well, the way I spun it was, "I'm I'm the best trained guy in the country, man." You kidding? <laughs> well, you can see the instructors are going like, "Oh hell, here comes Lou again. Here comes Lou again. <laughs> he's yeah. back. Right. He's back." Yeah. Well, so so you finally get your job, and let's talk a little bit about Savannah because. Um, People don't realize this. I mean, you know, a lot of my background is uh, Western European, Irish, Scottish, and stuff. Savannah has a very large Irish population. In fact, it's the home to the second yes. largest St. Patrick's Day parade. And you never would have thought that after Kevin Spacey and that movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Right. Yeah, it is a huge Irish population here, and uh, they take it seriously. So the city is it's full of pubs. And bars, and when St. Patty's Day comes around, man, they, I mean, they dye the river green, and uh, over a million people uh, attend the parade, and it's huge. So you've been in Savannah yep. since when? Well, you know, I, I came over in, uh, at the very beginning in 98, uh, but, you know, I worked all over the country, but I, I was based in Savannah, uh, since 98. So yeah. you finally, you make it through the academy for the third time. You're with ATF. So now tell us yep. about, you go through the academy um, and now you're coming out into Savannah. What, how does work start for you? What is, what does the first six months look like? Here's the great part. ATF back then, the academy was wild. It was still cowboy land, man. It was still wild. Um, so when, when we got hired back then, you got your gun and your badge before you went to the academy. My, my academy wasn't, uh, date wasn't set for a while. Um, and, you know, my boss was like, hey, man, you know, you, he goes, you've already been an agent for 
you know, whatever it was, seven or eight years, he said, you know, run, go run. My first partner was an undercover guy, uh, the great Randy Beach, who's now a police chief in Pickens, South Carolina. Um, he, uh, he took me out to do an undercover deal on my first day. Uh, I started working on, I, I did a bunch of cases before I even went to the academy. I mean, back then ATF, we were still under the treasury department and we were running wild, man. It was the greatest time ever. How long were you out in the field before you had to go back to the academy then? Uh, it was several months. It was several months. Uh, and then I went, you know, and the ATF academy was short. It was, it was, uh, 10, maybe 10 or 10 weeks, 12 and weeks. And you didn't tops. have to drive too far to get to the academy this time. Uh, yeah, it was an hour. Yeah, it was an hour. And, but, you know, like I said, back then the Academy, like our, you know, now it's super strict. I mean, now I think internal affairs actually has permanent people at the Academy for us. But back then, like our guys would come in as our, uh, uh, what do you call it, Steve? The coordinators, class coordinators. And, and I mean, we were just, we were getting shit faced all night and going to class. I have no recollection of that. Hungover. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it was wild and just great people. Great. It was a great time. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you graduated into working into undercover, but it's not just a simply, even though you worked with a partner during that time, when you really worked UC with ATF, at that time they had probably one of the best courses, you know, in classes and programs around. So yeah. without disclosing state secrets, you know, but but talk about what was that process like, A, to get into it? And B, you know, the training, what did they put you through in order to be able to quote work, uh, you know, UC undercover? So you have to, you have to attend the ATF advanced undercover course, which is, uh, I tell you, it's a lot of pressure. Um, these scenarios, uh, and when I look back, when I started working undercover, it's, it's amazing. Cause you know, most people don't enjoy training. I, I didn't, but these scenarios, um, that they put you through. So they bring in. We bring in all a whole bunch of undercover guys and girls, and then we bring in a whole bunch of role players and put you through, put our students through the most realistic undercover scenarios you can imagine. You know, at the Academy, we have everything set up. We have biker bars and, and uh, you know, project kind of houses and trailers and all sorts of scenarios and, and everything has, uh, you know, is, is mic'd up and uh, with cameras and you know, you get your background and you, sometimes they're long-term things where you will do a series of, of different transactions leading up, you know, to an ultimate goal. Sometimes they're just quick hits, we call them, you know, where it's just, you know, you're buying a gun from a convicted felon. It's a one-time deal. But uh, when you do it, first of all, you know that you're being watched, right? In a monitor room, you're being recorded and watched, you know, by these guys and girls who have done it all and know what they're doing who are watching you and judging you. Uh, you know, the role players and the undercover agents you're dealing with are, are, are phenomenal. And, and the, the situations are so realistic. And I can remember, you know, so, you know, being at the, at the uh, you know, the pre-op, the briefing. And uh, so, you know, you get your information from the case agent and, you know, they give you your gun and all this, tell you what, what you're supposed to do. And, and I mean, I remember getting like almost physically ill, like with the butterflies in my stomach. And, and it's, it's not a real deal, right? I was never nervous ever doing it on the street for 20 years. But before I went into those <laughs> scenarios, when I was in class, I, I would, I would almost get diarrhea. I would be so nervous. 
and have to run to the bathroom. Well, okay, uh, let's let you. Because yeah. of the pressure. <laughs> I said that's, it. I said, I said it. it. That's, that's why, but I guarantee you what, if I was searching your house and I saw that underwear, I wouldn't look under it. So. Yeah, you know where it you, came that's from. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. right. That's hey, right. Well, so that's funny, too, because Murph, um, we're doing a whole nother series with him and Javier where I'm going deep with him and Javier through stuff. But one of the things that was very funny that what I'm thinking of is when you took Boyd Holbrook down. So tell, tell him that story. I think we should share that with the listeners. The actor. Yeah. yeah so the actors that played Javier and I, uh, Pedro Pascal, Boyd Holbrook, we took him to the Academy and, and through DEA headquarters authorization, embedded him with our, one of our classes for a week. So they had to get up in the mornings to go do PT. They had to go to the range. They had to sit in a classroom only for an hour, though. Uh, but they got to experience a lot of things. So we took them up into Hogan's Alley so they could work undercover. And it was to go to a house, buy two ounces of meth. And the scenario is you've been there before. You know, it's just another buy. We're building a case as we go here. And they're explaining everything to them. And, and they said, as before, whatever you do, don't go in the house. You know, you're working in an undercover capacity. If you go in a house, surveillance can't see you. This is a small-time dealer. It's not a big deal. So, you know, Pedro goes up, and, of course, the the role players in there are coached to entice the undercover to come in the house because now you've got control of the undercover, right? So Pedro goes up, and yep. he just, he's ready to walk away from the deal, and, and, and that's the scenario. If, you do, if you're going to walk away from the deal, because a cop would never walk away from a deal, right? You'll do anything to make the deal right. go. Right. And uh, so they're, okay, okay, man, here you go, here you go. Here's, give me the money. Here's the dope. You know, and he walks away. Well, Boyd comes up, and I love Boyd like a brother. We stay in touch, and, and I mean, just, I hope he doesn't get mad at me for telling this story. <laughs> but uh, he comes up the front porch, and the actor says, hey, man, come on in. We don't want anybody to see our business here. And Boyd goes, uh, okay. <laughs> and goes into the house. Just strolls oh, right in, well, right? See, so we're inside with the instructors, and we're administratively not there. We're not part of the scenario at all. So we have to stop for five seconds to explain that to Boyd. And then he goes back into his undercover role. Well, now he sees Javi and I standing there, and he wants to be cool, right? So he's he goes over, and he's, he's shucking and jiving. He's doing the talk, and I'm Joe Cool. Yeah, no, everything's cool, brother. Let's just get this deal, you know. And, and he sits down. Well, here comes Mongo, the monster out of the back room that nobody knows is there. You know, this, <laughs> this guy's like six eight, bigger than you. He's like six eight, you know, and just got shoulders that are three days long. And he comes in. He's like, "Who the fuck is this in my house? Where? Are you? Who are you? I've never seen you before. Who let you in? You know, just blast him." Well, then he grabs Boyd and stands him up, and searches him. He finds his undercover gun. You brought a gun in my house. Oh my god! You know, this <laughs> end of the world. And yep. so Mongo goes, you know, he, he berates the hell out of him. And then he goes in the back room and we're all there just trying to not, <laughs> not to snicker, you know, <laughs> right, poor right, boy, right. Man, he's doing his best to make this thing work. And, uh, lo and behold, Mongo comes back out and the scenario is that Mongo shoots a boy in the head with his own gun. Well, it's, it's, these are not real guns, obviously they, they, these were, uh, blank guns, but he does it behind Boyd's head. Boyd doesn't know it. And so when he fires those rounds, Boyd falls right out on the floor. I thought, oh, my God, he had a heart attack. <laughs> we killed him. We killed him. Of course, <laughs> you stop the scenario at that point. Uh, you, you know, you evaluate. You critique yeah. what just happened here. And poor old boy, man, he is, he's, he's shaking, but <laughs> he's doing his best to maintain his cool, you know, because he's a Hollywood actor. <laughs> That's right. So That's right. At the end of the story is when we left at the end of the week, the, the AV, the audiovisual center at the Acad DEA Academy had put together this nice poster and it's four pictures. It's me and Javier and then the two actors and they're, you know, 
in each corner of this poster. And they ask us each to autograph it and, you know, give a little motivational saying. And, you know, and so we all do. And it still hangs in the academy today. And when you read Boyd's, it says, whatever you do, don't go in the house. Speaking of a pair of underwear, that's probably got a crap stain in them. Uh, you know? Boyd, I mm -hmm. love you, brother. There you go. Hey, you know what else always made, uh, would always make the guys uncomfortable, uh, the guys going through the scenarios? If you had a female role player and you told her before the, before the uh, scenario or transaction said, hey, you know, go, go over there while during, during the transaction and love up on him, rub up on him, and see how he reacts. <laughs> and that would always get, the guys would always crumble, uh, always. So Wouldn't know what to do. So predictable. <laughs> yep. Yep. Let's fast forward a little bit because, I mean, there's a lot of things in between, but what I'm really interested in, and really what we're, we're taking a lot of this too from a book proposal you've put together, which we'll talk about. It's called Storefront. But you, one of your first major undercover operations was a murder for hire. And you had to come up with your first persona, your first undercover identity, Louis Tedesco. I mean, couldn't you come up That's with right. Martin Smith or Jimmy, you know, Wilson or how did the hell did you come up with Louis Tedesco? So, it, you know, a lot goes into to building uh, your undercover identity. And uh, a lot of it back then we actually did on our own um, because you can't always trust the government, uh, especially when it's your ass on the line. So, you know, I had been Louis Tedesco uh, for a while. And, you know, I, I just, I picked names from my childhood growing up and I grew up with mostly Italians and, uh, it was Frankie Tedesco was a buddy of mine. So I just chose that name. I always liked the name. So I figured I'd keep my real name. Cause at that point, you know, I'm not that smart. And at least I, I would always answer to my own name. That, I figured. And that's key so, right there, Lou. That's, that's key Morgan, because yep. it's, it, it's natural reaction. If you, somebody yells Morgan, you're going to turn around, right? And huh? the same thing with yep. Luke. What? Yeah. Wake up. What? Wake up. Kansas, <laughs> right. wake up. But it was the same with me in Miami, and I didn't do anything like you did undercover, but my undercover name was Steve Mitchell. You know, it was very simple. Somebody yep. else, Steve, yep. I answer. It is always best in undercover work, Murph, to keep things as close to reality as you can, especially in the long-term ones, because it, it will prevent you from slipping up. Um, so anyway... You know, I had chosen that name and then, uh, you know, the government does the backstopping for you, but we always went above and beyond what they did uh, with our backstopping. And, and for folks who don't know, tell people what backstopping is, why that's so important. So your backstopping is the, the background of your undercover identity, right? So if you look into a person, a real person, uh, if you have a hire a private investigator to look in to Morgan or to Steve, you know, there's... A lot of information out there they're going to find out about you okay so backstopping is creating all that information for an undercover persona so when you run a credit check on steve murphy you're going to come up with certain things uh you know criminal history i, I hope you wouldn't come up with anything on murph um right everything i mean you down you know down to the driver's yeah, license down to proper yeah, the, everything right yeah. Property records, organizations you belong to. I mean, there's so much information out there, uh, you know, through all these public, you know, real estate uh, sites and, and all that. So you have to be backstopped because when you are, it's not so much in the quick hit, right? If I'm going to buy a gun off Pookie uh, in the hood, he's not checking into Sal Nunziato's credit history, right? 
But if I'm infiltrating the Outlaw Motorcycle Club or, uh, you know, a major street gang, the Latin Kings or someone, they're going to do some checking, right? A lot of these organizations, and Steve's work with cartels, I mean, they'll hire PIs and, you know, they'll check you out. So essentially backstopping is important. And, and, and I'll just give a quick example of that. When, when I did my first biker case uh, out in California, uh, it, it was with the Hells Angels. And, and one of the Hells Angels was a, uh, worked for Century 21. Uh, he, he was a real estate really? guy. And, and the reason, yeah, one of the reasons for that, I don't know whether he was recruited because of that or, or what, but, you know, uh, real estate people could run credit reports on people. And they ran me and my partner's credit report very soon after we got out there and wow. started uh, working with these guys. So just for the hell of it, I, you know, and I had never seen my own credit report. You know, we, we decided, we asked, hey, man, we want to see this. And I look, and there's Sal, uh, it wasn't at the time, I think it was actually Louis Tedesco at the time, but I had perfect, I had a great credit history, Saks, Fifth Ave, all this shit. And I'm like, that's not, that's not, that doesn't look, that's not what a, a biker guy, a thug doesn't have perfect credit history, you know, but again, that's, that's just a little bit of disconnect with the government. You know what I mean? So, so a lot of the backstopping we did on our own, you know, I, I, and I mean, just Morgan, just things you do in everyday life. Like we would get mad, I would get magazine subscriptions. I had, you know, obviously all, and that's just all sorts of shit, join clubs, all sorts of things that if you looked up Louis Tedesco or Sal Nunziato, you would find a ton of real shit about them. And and how did you get these agencies to go? It, it, was there a special relationship? Um, because I know guys who have worked, uh, you know, I did some work with guys in the intel field and stuff, and of course they've got their sources. But when you would get a driver's license, when you would get property records and stuff, was that wittingly or did you have a conduit that you went through that put these records in and made them kind of an unwitting accomplice to your backstop? So there, there would be a conduit uh, somewhere with DMV, an agency rep, uh, but usually it would just be one person who would, who would be working with our agency uh, that would kind of enable these things and make it make it happen. Yeah, because I mean, to get a real driver's license, you got to get a real driver's license, you know, and it's got to get Absolutely. into the system and it's got to have a history and That's everything. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and you know, I I really found out later uh, doing these storefronts how important because I would when we would do a storefront operation, I would have to go out and actually. You know, because we couldn't use any inside hookups with the with the police department we were working with. You know, hey man, we want to rent this place, uh, and I would have to do it all in my under. I'd have to go meet with a realtor, and then I would have to apply for all these licenses and permits and all that shit. So backstopping was really important. Uh, especially when you're, when you're setting up a fake yeah, business. Yeah, and that's why it was so, I wanted to really go through that to make people understand because when we start talking about this murder for hire, which didn't get into it as much, but definitely the storefront operations, I mean, that's, you, you got to have a solid, you got to have a solid legend. You have to have a solid cover because somebody's going to dig into it. Hey, let me tell you, people are sharp, right? So the murder for hire you're talking about, uh, we did make a little mistake. Um, the, this guy was a doctor, you know, he was, he was a smart guy. So, I had a Camaro at the time because, you know, it's standard issue. I for still an got Italian, a 2000 right? Camaro Super Sport, baby. Do you really? Awesome oh, yeah. car, man. We had the, the you know, IROC Z. I had an IROC. I did. Yeah. You know what the, You know what IROC stands for, right? What do you say it stands for? <laughs> I know what it stands for, but what do you say? Italian. 
but I'm cruising. <laughs> oh, right? we're going to hear about that one. So, <laughs> oh, that's going to have to be a bleep. <laughs> I, I'm Italian, so okay. I can say that. All right. <laughs> All right. So anyway, mine. I think I had a 90 at the time with that murder fire. It was a 99 Camaro. But anyway, didn't think about this. Uh, you know, I was supposed to be based out of Savannah. The Camaro had, you know, in Georgia, they put the county on the bottom of your uh, a sticker on your license plate. And the Camaro was out of Glen County for whatever reason, which is the Brunswick area, which is where he lived. And he actually did mention that uh, to the to the guy who had who uh, had reported him at one point. He was he mentioned that he looked at my car and saw the Glen County sticker and thought that was a little funny. So there's so many little things that can go wrong when you're doing a, a any kind of undercover operation. You really have to think of everything. Well, so let's talk about this murder for hire for a second, because um, how did you get involved in the case? I mean, this is a guy named Dr. Carl Drury, and it was really interesting, yep. too, because we'll talk about his novel legal defense later, but... Um, What's, yeah. what's important in a murder for hire? You know, you, you get brought in. How do you establish credibility? How do you set the stage so, A, it's not entrapment, and, B, you get him saying the right things that can be used later to charge him with? So entrapment is 99 out of 100 times going to be their defense. Uh, so the, the most important thing in a murder for hire is to give them plenty of outs, right, which I always did. By, by that, I mean saying, listen, are you sure? Like there is no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, once, once I walk away from you right now, it's happening. Are you sure you want to do this? And I, I would give them multiple outs, right? Because it's hard to say entrapment. It's hard to, to put up an entrapment defense. You know, when, when the jury's listening to that video and he's given a chance to say, well, I don't, I'm not sure when he says, yeah, do it. I want this done. So, so that is very important in a murder for hire to give, to give plenty of outs. Um, you know, and, and again, I like Steve and I were talking about earlier, I played everything as real as I could. So I would go into every situation in the mindset of a guy who killed people for money. So I'm not going to go in there and talk my ass off, right? Because I wouldn't do that. I'm going to go in there and listen. And I am putting this person to the test because I don't trust this person. Are they setting me up? And that's how I, that's how I went into it. Um, you know, so with the doctor, we actually met at a, so the whole situation was a little bit bizarre because it was actually a firearms instructor at the academy who was friends with this guy and they were golfing buddies. And this guy, uh, you know, we've all been with buddies who say, you know, shit about their wives and all that. And he came up to him and said, listen, I, I want to get rid of my wife. Do you know anybody? Well, wait a minute. And so, so this guy goes to, and this guy, the firearms instructor, is he a cop or is he just a civilian instructor? I, I think technically he, he was just at the academy setting, but I think, I, I don't even know the answer to that. I think he, technically he might've been, but, but, but this he is was a guy who's at the instructor. academy training other cops on firearms and you get a yes, brilliant rocket absolutely. scientist come up and says, Hey, you, I think I want to whack my wife. I mean, first of all, that's, is he that smart to start off with? Well, so there was a relationship there. They were buddies. Uh, the, the guy actually lived in one of his uh, houses for a little while. So, I mean, they had a close relationship. So, and, and this guy was vilified during the trial, uh, you know, because, you know, the defense always has to pick someone, you know, to vilify. And uh, this guy really got a bad shake, but 
he really did the only his only option the right thing to do is what he did <clears throat> but so this guy had kind of a, a military background kind of a little bit of a you know a secret squirrel background uh special ops and the doctor knew this because again they were buddies so when he approached him you know the guy kind of put it off like yeah you know but it didn't end there the doctor said listen i gotta get rid of her she's killing me financially i think she's cheating on me she's killing me financially i gotta get rid of her so eventually this guy's like man i think he's serious so so what do you do right at that point seriously what do you do so he knew ATF did murder for hire. So he went to the closest ATF office, you know, from the academy, which was Savannah. And he went there like any citizen and knocked on the door and sat down with my rack and told him the whole situation. He said, listen, I think this guy is serious. He keeps asking me this and I think he really wants to kill her. He goes, and I'm worried. And Iraq is a resident agent in charge. That's like the person who runs your office, right? Yep. So, so when this happened, my rack called me in the office and he told the guy, I said, please, please repeat this, which he did. So I gave him my undercover, uh, cell number. And I said, listen, if he approaches you again, I said, don't go up to him. But if he approaches you again about this, tell him you might have a guy. And then you'll try to get my number. I said, give it a day and then give him my phone number. Tell him to call. And I, you know, I gave him instructions. I said, tell him, listen, I don't want anything to do with this. I do know a guy from my past who, who might be interested in this kind of stuff. Give him a call, but I'm out. It's exactly what he did. And, you know, I kind of forgot about it because these, these things do come up. And as Steve can tell you, 99 out of a hundred times, nothing ever happens. So one day I'm in a supermarket with my wife and my undercover phone rings. I say, hello, it's a no, no, uh, number I don't recognize. And he says, hey, this is the doctor. I said, okay. I said, hey, man, let me, uh, let me get somewhere where I can talk to you. I said, call me back in 20 minutes. So, you know, things were different back then, Steve, as you remember. So I had to run home and set up the... Recording. Whatever it was. Yeah, the NRT2, whatever that yep. thing was, and, and hook it up to the earpiece yep. and all that. And... Uh, wait for him to call. And, uh, he called back and said he wanted to meet. And that's how it all started. From beginning to end, how long did that case take? It took about three, maybe three or four weeks. Uh, it got to a point where ATF felt that the wife had to be brought in and told, yeah. and then he had to be taken down because they, the concern is always, am I the only one he's dealing with? Are you one of three people he's elsewhere? talking to and looking for who can do it first? Yeah. There was Bingo. one particular thing he used to facilitate that decision. Why did he provided you with a certain item? He did. Uh, I told him when in our first meet in the Camaro, uh, I told him, I said, listen, this, the way I do this is I make it look like a robbery and uh, she gets killed. And his only thing to that, he thought that was great. He said, listen, she has a daughter and I don't want her harmed. I said, well, all right, I'll make sure that, you know, she's not around. He was adamant about that. He didn't want the daughter harmed. And uh, I then told him, you know, and he gave me, I said, listen, give me the situation. I said, tell, tell me everything there is to know about her. And he gave me everything, where she worked, all her information, everything, her habits, the whole deal, where she lived. And uh, 
you know, they were, they were uh, kind of estranged at the time, I believe. And so I told him, I figured I'd, I'd, uh, what the hell? Because at this time it's all state charges, uh, which is okay. But I said, listen, I said, it, it would be cleanest if you had a nice clean gun for me. I said, you give me a clean gun to do it and I'll throw it in the fucking ocean when I'm done. Okay. And the next meeting he gave me a, a 38 revolver. Uh, That's a great it. piece of evidence, isn't it? It's a good piece of evidence. And uh, and that's what makes it a federal case at that point? It kind of does. What actually uh, made it a federal case, what got our hooks in, was that he was calling me to set up these meetings Ah, on a cell phone. He was in Brunswick, George. Well, the cell phone he was calling from, which is Brunswick, which is right by the Florida line, was hitting off a tower in Jacksonville and then bouncing to my cell phone in Savannah. So across the state so line. So there's the use of an interstate communication facility in the oh, commission of murder man. fire, which actually, <laughs> I know, it's chicken ship. It actually made, it made case law. It went to the Supreme Court and it made case law, that case. Oh, really? To, to say that that was an interstate facilitation? And it was upheld yep. or overturned? Obvious. It was upheld. Yeah. It was upheld. Wow. Yeah. Well, hey, so, well, and so, but the funny thing is, was this guy's novel legal defense, which I thought there's always one in there. It's like, I wasn't trying to kill my wife. I was a pansy in a training scenario, right? I mean, because he happened to be where the academy was, which was, so, so just to give you the backstory. So after, I think the, after he gave me the gun and the down payment and all that, he, uh, the ATF and the GBI, we were working with Georgia Bureau of Investigation, determined they were like, listen, we got to pull her in. So, and that's a tough thing to hear, right? As a, as a wife. So they pulled her, they went to her job and she said, we got to get my, and they said, we need to talk to you. And she goes, is this about my daughter? And they said, no. She goes, well, I need to get my daughter. So they got the daughter, they brought her in, brought her to a hotel room. And, and that's a tough thing to drop on someone, right? Your, your spouse has hired someone to kill you. She wouldn't believe it. Uh, so they actually brought me into the room with the daughter and the mother and they played the, they played the tapes. And, uh, as you can imagine, she broke down, uh, you know, it was a tough couple hours, but to her credit, she was able to pull it together enough to make a recorded call to him, uh, that to facilitate and set up the takedown. Uh, and she, she pulled it off. Great. Um, the, you know, the phone call, she, I mean, she did a great job and I, I give her so much credit and I've spoken to her recently. Uh, she recently, recently did a magazine article and, uh, she did, you know, very brave, such a great job. Uh, so, so after she did that, um, and we set it up and he was yelling at her and all that. Uh, <clears throat> and then we found out he had just taken out a million dollar insurance policy oh, on her. Jeez. Yeah which also didn't help at, at the uh, bail hearing. Uh, so, you know, for the, the last phone call was very important. Uh, she was heading up to, to the lake, you know, and she, she played this out well on the phone. She told him she was heading up to the lake house. Uh, and so it was funny because in our last meeting, he kind of changed up a little bit and said, is there any way... He goes, she always goes out and swims in the lake, and I tell her not to. He goes, is there any way you can go out there and maybe, he goes, instead of shooting her, you could pull her from, from underneath, pull her under the lake and drown her. <laughs> and I was like, listen, I said, I can't even fucking swim, guy. Yeah, you want SEAL right? Team said, 6 for that. You don't want me. <laughs> right, right, right. Holy cow. 
And, and, and again, and so I, again, I gave him an out. I was like, listen, are you sure about this? I said, you're trying to change things up. And, and, and he was adamant. He was like, you know, he's like, do it. You know, his last words were, you know, do it. Uh, you know, I told him I was going to, I was going to follow her and get her when she stopped. Cause he told me where she stops to gas up. We decided that's where the, the fatal robbery would be and all that. And, uh, and then they, they, he was actually at a phone booth and they swarmed him and took him down right there. And the, the trial was, the trial was crazy. Talk about his novel legal defense about this. He's part of a unwitting accomplice and a training plot. So, so this guy was a big deal in that area. He was an LPGA. He had been an LPGA uh, physician, you know, for the LPGA. Uh, he had represented all the workers at Georgia Pacific uh, in their big lawsuit against the uh, paper mills for the conditions and all that. He was very popular. Uh, so his, the lawyer he hired was Eddie Garland out of Atlanta, who was a big deal. He's, if you remember, he's the guy who got... Uh, the football player, Ray Lewis, off. Oh, the murder that, charges, yeah. What happened in Atlanta? Yes, he's the guy who got him off. And uh, Eddie, was he's a good attorney. So the defense they came up with, because this is tough because there's... All the evidence, yeah. It's always... Yeah, it's always tough when there's when you're playing what happened, uh, you know, recorded. But uh, their defense was that he thought the whole thing was one of these uh, undercover fake scenarios at the academy and he was just playing along which and in a real undercover scenario you give i mean in a fake training uh, uh uc course you give a real gun with real bullets to a guy yeah. right <laughs> right right yeah that's the best he could come right. up with it, huh? that was the Jeez. best uh but you know it was a, it was a big time i mean they had a limo at the trial waiting at the end of the trial because they were so sure he was going to get off his family and take him away. And I think Arnold Palmer was there because he knew oh, all geez. these golfers. And it, it was like a big deal. And, and all of a sudden, I was kind of in that air. I was vilified a little bit. I mean, I, This was a federal you know, trial I mean, I, at this point, right? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. How long was the jury out? Not long. Uh, a couple see, hours. See, that's a bad sign, too. You Maybe. know, you, you'll see it on TV, right? But But... When it takes longer to do the paperwork than it does to find the rat bastard guilty, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. For the listeners, a, yep, a jury, a federal jury being out two hours or less, that's fantastic for the prosecution. That's that's a pretty quick conviction. Right. So so this this brilliant rocket science, he goes away. But the thing the thing that really impacted me about this, doing the research on this and reading this, was not just the story, but you talked about what she's done with it later. It this gave her so much PTSD. I mean, she it, yes. mentally, it screwed her up for a long time. Yep. And, and think about it. I mean, she was just, I think she was a nurse or something. Just, I mean, when you find something, you find that out. How do you ever, how do you ever trust anybody again? Uh, so, you know, and I could really sympathize with her on that. Uh, and, you know, a weird little side note to that is uh, I was out with my wife and kids a few years back. Uh, on Tybee Island, Georgia, at a restaurant. And there was this, uh, uh, one of the waitresses, she wasn't our waitress, she kept staring at me, a young girl, right, in her early 20s. And uh, finally, we get up, we're getting up to leave, and she comes up to me, she goes, you don't recognize me, do you? I said, I have no idea who you are. And she said, you you saved my mother's life. And it was the oh, daughter. Oh, man. Yeah, there uh, you go. Yeah, and, and she, you know, she hugged me, and we cried. And, That's fantastic. Uh, Oh yeah. 
Yeah. Of course, and that is also something that the media, you know, you're not going to publish that anyway, but the media would never bring that to the public's attention no. of how somebody Hell appreciated no. you, you know, risking your life out there to protect her mom. Well, that's not, that's not, uh, it doesn't fit the narrative, uh, you know. Well, hey, one thing I want to ask you about before we get into the storefront operations and stuff was really, you kind of made a good comment too, because I think we're all kind of cut from the same cloth. All of us probably were proactive during our careers. We didn't want to sit on our ass, wanted to be out there, tip of the spear kind of stuff. You talked about, you didn't want to be part, you just couldn't stand the lunch crowd. Tell us about the lunch crowd. The lunch club. Yeah. So so as, as both you guys well know, because everyone's got them, and, and this is not just law enforcement, but I, you know, this is probably every profession. Pick your profession. Lawyers, doctors, teachers, whatever, right? Yep. So, you know, there was always that section of, of agents who I called the lunch club, who they would always come in late to the office. And, uh, you know, I'd always be in there doing my reports from whatever I had done the night before out there and all that. And. You know, they'd come into their cubicles and, and uh, they'd be talking over the cubicles and the big discussion at 10 in the morning would be where they're doing lunch. Where are we going to lunch today? All right. And then, uh, you know, whose car are we taking? How are we getting there? How we, you know, the, the logistics and the coordination of lunch. So by the time they all got, you know, together and all that and then actually went to lunch and got back and got back to the office, you know, it's one thirty, right? Two. And, you know, now... The, the discussion, you know, well, we got to talk about where we're going tomorrow and you know, what time I got to pick up my kids from lacrosse. And, and in the meantime, you know, we're, we're, I'm trying to round up people to cover a deal or do something. And uh, and listen, I'm not I, this might be corny, but my always and I tell you what, my first partner, Randy Beach uh, with ATF was was without a doubt the hardest working guy I've ever met in my life. But I had this corny thing when, when I first got hired on because of the work ethic my father instilled in me. The taxpayers were going to get a full day's work for a full day's pay for me every day of my career and then some. It's just how I felt, and, which, which is easy to do when you love your job, Steve, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you love your job, I mean, I, I didn't care. I never cared. Uh, this came back to haunt me later, but to my own, to the detriment of my personal life, I never cared what time I was coming home or in the job had to be done. And, uh, that, that whole lunch club, uh, thing always annoyed me. And, uh, you know, some, we might've had the same thing. At DEA. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, every police department in the country, I'm sure. This is the end of part one for episode four. As we told you, and as we promised, we're going to keep this part short. We're going to get into episode four, part two. Check your inboxes Thursday morning. We're going to drop it first thing at midnight. It's going to be there for you to listen to. And then we'll be back with our next episode with Kevin Stevens the following Monday. So enjoy. See you in a couple days for episode four, part two.